The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Proverbs. We're reading from chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendant for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, Let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol. Let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. If you have a Bible or a phone... Please open up to the book of Proverbs that can be found towards the middle of your Bibles next to the book of Psalms. It's part of the wisdom literature which we are studying and examining in our new series called The Quest for Wisdom because we believe here at Flat Rock that we are all born on a quest. We're born lost. Adam and Eve um, in their sin were kicked out of the garden. Um, they were disrupted in finding the wisdom to know how to live life as it was meant to be lived. That was disrupted, and they were left on a quest to find their way back to the right source, to the right tree. They ate of the wrong tree when they were meant to have wisdom dispensed to them by God in good time, in His timing, in, in, in adequate proportion, just as we dispense knowledge and wisdom to our own children. We don't overwhelm them with things of the world. We slowly teach them and bring them along. That's how Adam and Eve were meant to relate to God. But the tree of the knowledge of good and bad hijacked all of that. They knew too much, more than they could handle. And it created the world that we live in now, the broken existence that we live in now. But God in His grace still wanted to rule creation with Adam and Eve and bring them back. And that's what the story of the Bible is. It's God's rescue mission to bring us back. But we're all born lost. We're on this quest, um, and we believe that there is an uncompromising source from whom we were meant to receive wisdom, or this, as we've translated it, the skill of living well. How do we live life well? How is life working out for you right now? And typically, we complicate the answers and the solutions to what it looks like to make life like we want it. We tend to exhaust ourselves pursuing all the wrong trees, all the wrong sources. So what would it look like to simply reorient ourselves to the right source? And it's the beauty of the gospel, and it's the beauty of the scriptures. It's kind of like when people come into my office, and they're, I've told you all this before, but they're complaining about everything, life's not working, all this stuff's going wrong, and you say, well, when was the last time you prayed? It's been months, I don't know. When's the last time you spent time with the Lord? I don't know. You know, it's like, it's like when you call the technician about your computer, and they just say, have you plugged it in? You're like, no, I haven't tried that. Well, start there. Um, it's a lot, the the solution and the change that we're all seeking is a lot simpler than we think. And God graciously stands 
as the source for which that change can come. But we are on a perilous quest. Evil is hunting. Evil is distracting. It is seeking to take us out at every turn and every corner. And we're, because of our sinful estate, we're so naturally drawn to what is wrong and what is evil that we need a true north compass to show us the right way. And that's, what, that's where God stands. So we're going to examine what it looks like through this book uh, to live well, to understand the skill of living well in light of the grace of God. So let me pray one more time and then we'll start. Lord, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. Nourish our souls this morning by your grace and power and mercy, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I, I took verses 1 through 7 and I talked about what I called the preamble, um, which is essentially Solomon casting. Solomon is the author of, the, of Proverbs. He's sitting on the throne. He's king of Israel. Life is good when he's writing Proverbs. This is what it looks like as Israel and Solomon live in the wisdom of God as, their, as its true source. And Solomon gives this compelling yet risky vision of what it looks like for things to, for us to live life as we were meant. Um, he's writing to, to youth primarily. So his primary audience are the teenagers, the young men and women who are being raised up in Israel to be the next generation. But there's obviously universal appeal for all of us. But this preamble then leads to a very important threshold. So you can't understand and, and take hold of the vision of what Proverbs is meant to be, to know wisdom and instruction. And remember, that translation there is that to know is to experience. To experience the skill of living well through discipline is what that means. Because that word instruction is a very severe word. It talks about being whipped with the rod. It talks about um, you know, being put in the right direction through fairly extreme means. And so he's saying you can't know the skill of living well in a sinful world without proper discipline. And that discipline comes from God. And so the discipline that he's providing for you is not discipline out of hatred or discipline to somehow punish you, but it's discipline to help you see because the situation in our existence is so severe and the world is so broken that to get us to live as we should and follow the right path, God is going to have to intervene and it's usually going to hurt. I was doing a wedding last night and uh, the pastor in his homily said something really important. He said, you know, to do marriage well... It's going to hurt. To do anything well in a broken, sinful world, pain will be required because it's not natural for us if we're sinners. So, this is to give us guidance for how best to experience the peace of God. And remember, it's all connected to the garden. Evil is being personified, Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly, the Father and the Son, Wisdom is being personified because it ties back to what God, as the loving Father, originally wanted for His people. He has not given up. The instructions still exist for us. And so as we live this way and we find wisdom from its proper source, the blessings of Eden, the blessings of order, are given not only to us but to our neighbors, to the nations even. So... In our obedience, there's much more at stake than just your own personal well-being. That's the covenantal relationship that we have with God. It's, there's more at stake. There's a whole people at stake. There's the church at stake. So when we make our decisions to live in obedience or to not, we often believe a false narrative and a lie that this isn't going to affect anyone. 
And so we want to hide in that, and we want to feel okay about it. But the truth is our disobedience affects people just as much as our obedience does as well. And so he gives us this necessary threshold, and we talked about the threshold as being a gateway or a catalyst to helping us experience the vision of what he's talking about in verses 1 through 6. And that threshold is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I said this, I said, learning to live in the fear of the Lord is what 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to learning calculus. It's what ABCs are to reading Shakespeare. It's what scales are to playing Beethoven. And I think, sadly, me included, many of us often live life thinking we're, we've learned to play it well, but we've really been just banging on the keys. We've been drawing scribble-scrabble, as my girls call it. We're not drawing within the lines. And we, we actually think it's Monet. You know, a kid throw, shows up their, their, their scribble-scrabble drawings, and they're so proud of it. And I think, I think we've, we've not, a lot of us haven't progressed past that part. And there's much more to be experienced. But yet we've settled. And we're just okay with okay. With just enough. And God desires so much more from us. And that's why he gives us the Proverbs. And he gives us this godly application and practical advice about every single facet of life. From how you, how you deal with your own body and your image to your money to, to your time. To everything you can think of. There's a proverb that applies to it. Good question to ask yourself this morning. What is your life centered on? What is the cornerstone that organizes your life? Solomon is teaching us here that wisdom begins with a right relationship with God. That is our cornerstone, as Jesus is referred to. As we put him in his proper place, it sets the lines for the rest of our lives. And with God as the cornerstone of our lives, all else will fall in line, give us much more peace than many of us currently live with. Here's the thing. Knowledge is a very valuable resource in our culture. It might be the most valuable resource, the most valuable commodity. We spend billions of dollars pursuing the best schools and the best educations to hold the best phones and the best iPads and the best computers to have instant access to whatever we want, whenever we want it. We can have the answer to any question, seemingly any problem is at our fingertips. <coughs> We're probably the most well-informed people in the history of the world, knowing vast amounts of information no one in history has been able to access as easily as we can. Information is easy to come by, but are we wise? So remember, being wise is not just being the smartest person in the room. Being wise is being the deepest, hardest repenter in the room. It's having the most accurate worldview, the most accurate view of who you are and how much you need, how much more you need to learn. What information matters most? Economics, healthcare, statistics, music, or the wisdom of God? That's what you should ask yourself. What are you most committed to? Which one organizes your life and informs your daily commitments? Where does your wisdom come from? And then Solomon here in verses 8 through 19, he gives us two things. He gives us an invitation and a warning. And this invitation is really important to unpack because it's saying a lot about who God is. And so if you're going to follow the path of God, if you're going to go to Him as this, if you're going to desire Him as the right source for which you learn how to make every decision and commitment in life, He wants you to see God for who He really is. And so He begins here in verse 8, and He says, 
Hear, my son, your father's instruction. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. Because how do we typically think of the God of the Old Testament? The, the angry God who's just out for vengeance and put people in their place? And he's describing the source of our wisdom as a loving father. So God is not just this God that we have to, he's not this angry God that we have to pacify with our good behavior. So he won't strike us with lightning. God is a wise and compassionate father. Here's the problem. Many of us didn't have a father like that, so we don't really know what that looks like. Because the word father doesn't have a lot of great connotations for us. And as one uh, I saw in uh, one documentary, and I think I've said this before, but one guy said, I've spent my entire life wiping the face of my father off of God. And many of us understand that. And so to hear that there is a father who is full of compassion, who offers wise instruction, whose words are worth listening to. So, I mean, many of our dads have spent so much time yelling and screaming and losing their temper, they invalidated any sort of voice that they had in the home. And it just invalidates everyone else's. Because, they, because their voice is invalidated, they feel like they've got to scream louder and be more extreme. And then it sucks all the air out of the room. No one's left to talk. No one wants to listen. Get me out of here. And he's saying, this God, whom you are lost from, is inviting you back onto his lap to receive his instruction. Wise words of advice from a father to a son. This is how God views his relationship with us. Do you view your relationship with him that way as well? It's not a boss to an employee. It's a loving, nurturing, firm guidance. And I think it's showing us here that God cares about our daily choices. He's, he's, it's familial language. So he's intimately acquainted with us. He's calling himself father. He's calling us son. And he's saying, even though you've... you've You've not been living well. You don't know how to live well. I want to teach you. And so he's showing that I care about the decisions you make. I'm not immune to evil. He recognizes its influence and presence in our lives. He cares enough to offer us a way to combat it. The God of Christianity is not oblivious to evil. He's not explaining it away. He's present in it with us. And he's saying, follow me through it. I recognize this for what it is. That's what it is to be wise. He's a wise, compassionate father with an invitation to navigate life with his word as our true north. And I think some of us need to be reoriented to that gracious invitation this morning. Notice also something really important here. He says, and hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Again, it just speaks to the the grace and the love and the equity of God. He's saying the mother's teaching is as valuable as the father's instruction. And God, God exists as both our father and our mother, in a sense. But I think it's also giving validation to the literal mothers and fathers that we have. We need to be receiving in wise instruction, wisdom 
from, godly, from two godly parents. Because in connection together, that's a powerful voice. It's a unified voice. They will leave their mother and father. They will become one flesh. There's unity there, and they speak in unity. And the father doesn't overcompensate for the mother, and the mother doesn't overcompensate for the father. They're equal in role. And that's one way you know that the father is worthy to be heard because he doesn't reject the mother's instruction. He promotes it. How many of you all grew up with dads like that? That's how we know he's worth listening to. He's the God of the universe. And yet, he's saying there will be other voices in which you should listen to that are worthy to be listened to. In a healthy home, the mother and father have equal voice and demand equal respect as the authorities in their home. I think if that's not present, then we grow up not respecting authority and rebelling against it. Many of us are in that circumstance. We kind of do what we want to do. We make Christianity work for us. We don't submit to it out of re- in a reverence, out of fear of the Lord. And notice that listening to both of the voices, both the father and the mother, what does it lead to? It says, They are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Okay, what, are, what, are, what are these symbols? These are symbols of victory and vindication. Saying, if you humble yourself... And listen to the wise instruction that God has to give. Again, it's going back to the garden, to Adam and Eve, to the man and the woman. As they were eating of, as they were going to God as the source, they were worth listening to. They were worth following. And he says, as you do that, there is a reward for you. There is satisfaction for you. It is a beautiful garland. It's a crown on your head. And people will recognize you for it. There's pendants on your neck. There's beauty and wealth in this. This is worth it. This is the most valuable commodity. There's an attractional quality then, a peace and a gentleness and approachableness. I think sadly, a lot of us spend so much money and energy and time bypassing obedience to God by simply trying to look the part on the outside. This is a common problem in America's South. It's inauthentic. It's an epidemic in the church. We just want to appear as though we're living by the fear of the Lord. If that's how we live as parents, our children will follow that. They will not know what it is to be authentic. And notice, too, that the father is not just saying, you're saying, oh, son, you're your own man. You do you. Whatever you think is true, have fun, have at it. Good luck navigating life. I'm here if you need me. He's proactive with his child. He's saying, I know, I've experienced life. I've experienced its ups and downs and travails, successes and failures. I have a thing to say about how life is best lived. And the only way we can receive that instruction is to humble ourselves and trust the person who's gone before us. The wise father, again, he knows there's this wild world out there that will be relentless in trying to keep his son from following the right path. Dangers await everywhere. A wise father warns his son and talks to him about the true nature of evil and its effect on the world. Are you doing that as a father of fathers? Do you have a father who did that? He says, my son, if sinners, in verse 10... 
If evil men who are missing the mark entice you or lure you or hunt you, which they will, don't consent, don't submit, don't follow. So again, I love the, I love the Bible because it doesn't hide away from the fact that the world is broken. It diagnoses it very specifically and accurately. And it's really refreshing. Because it's not just saying, follow God because He's awesome and everything perfect and everything will work out great and whatever. He's saying, life is really hard, it's really broken, we're lost, we have trouble finding how to live and how to be reoriented to God, and there's all these obstacles in the way, and this is, this is an accurate view of what makes the world what it is. So he knows as he's making this invitation to follow his instructions, there's going to be a lot of counter-invitations to follow the other way. And so you get this warning in verse 11 through 19. The wise father presents this fictitious dialogue imitating the voice of evil his son will hear. And here's the thing. It sounds a little extreme, right? Like, are, we really, are our kids really being tempted by people who are lying in wait for blood? Is that what they need to avoid? The people that are wanting to murder other people? We all know that evil is a lot more subtle than that. But the point he's saying is, is that evil is always bent on destruction. He's using extreme terms because he's saying evil is a very serious thing. Sin is a very serious thing. Violating God's law is a very serious thing. And a lot of us are just numbed out to that. And in part, it's because of God's grace, because as followers of Jesus, there's no more punishment for your sin. I think sometimes we wish God would be more active in punishing us. Life might be a little bit easier if he was a little more strong-handed with us. But because he was so strong-handed with his own son and showed him the rod, he spared us. So there is no more punishment for you. If that's what you're waiting on, you're not going to get it. By faith in Jesus and the punishment that he received, there is no more punishment for you. We obey out of the freedom of what Christ has given us. We don't have to live in the fear of the Lord in the sense of terror. We live in reverential awe and honor and respect for what he has allowed us to do, for what he invites us into as this gracious Father. And I think every temptation we face, it's either this subtle whisper towards the edge or it's a loud shout towards that same end. And it seems irrational, like what he's talking about here. They're going to lie and wait for blood and they're waiting to get all this plunder and fill their houses. They're going to go down to hell and it's going to swallow them alive. It seems irrational because sin is irrational. It's trying to succeed by ignoring reality. That's when every time you're tempted to sin, you're trying to make a choice between what's right and what's wrong, you're having to create a false narrative in your mind to justify what you're doing, to feel okay about it. And the, the most common one is this doesn't really matter. Nobody has to know. It only affects me. The proper response for any of us as the sons and daughters is to refuse the invitation from evil towards violence and self-destruction. That's what he's saying to you. Evil has always been on destruction. It, even the most subtle forms of it in your life are seeking to take you out. 
Because God, in His grace, has given you a part, as we talk about, a unique part that you can play, only you can play in that grand redemptive story. And Satan, the evil one, wants to take you out of that. So you don't experience what it is to live as you were meant to live. And it matters who we associate with. It matters the commitments we make. It matters the decisions that we make. It matters how we parent. It matters how we receive instruction, who we submit to. Lying in wait for blood here is not just waiting to murder someone, but seeking to snuff out life and steal it from others with our words and our actions. It's lying in wait for others to fail, to be taken out by evil. How many of us are tempted by that fantasy? You have trouble celebrating other people's successes? When was the last time you celebrated someone else succeeding? I think in our minds... We're so, we can be so insecure that we, we, we can't celebrate other people. We can't celebrate ourselves. And part of living with the wisdom of God is being able to celebrate His goodness in all its forms and facets, applied to all different kinds of people. That's how you know probably if you've met someone who's wise. They don't just revel in their own success. They can celebrate others. read a great, a, great, a great quote. It was a great quote. Um, one of the commentators said, sin tends to recruit. It's pretty good. Sin tends to recruit. That's what the father means when he warns his son that evil will entice you. It will say, come. It's literally saying, come with us. Join us. Cast your lot with us. Evil doesn't like to be alone. We want others to throw their lot in with us so we don't feel ashamed. This is really, the, I think, the epidemic of our culture. We got so tired of feeling isolated and ashamed for our sin that we just said, heck with it. Anything goes. Everybody's welcome. Come on in. The water's fine. You do you. You choose what's right. Don't tell anyone who to love or how to love. And we're like fish out of water flailing around, like trains off the track. The world is going to tempt us at every turn to pursue unjust gain and get ahead by any means possible so as to feel in control and successful. And this pursuit will literally take the life out of you. And that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible is getting very real and practical about the temptations that we face. Verse 17 is important to unpack. It says, for in vain, it's kind of a weird verse, for in vain a net is spread in the sight of any bird. You know what that means? I didn't. Um, the father's saying that even a dumb bird is wise enough to avoid a trap that he sees the hunter setting for him. The problem is many of us don't recognize the traps or the dumb birds, including me. And so part of being wise is recognizing where evil lies and the places to avoid. In other words, only fools think they can avoid disaster in following after what is evil. If you follow after evil, it will end in destruction. The great Bono, it's a wonderful line in his, one of his songs that I've quoted often. says, I was playing with fire until the fire played with me. Playing with fire until the fire played with me. 
For some of you, the fire is playing with you. And you need to step away. Because there's a lot more at stake than just you. Although it might be killing you too. Father goes on to say, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such is the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It literally takes the life of its possessors away. That's what it says. It takes away the life of its possessors. What is threatening to suck the life from you? A wise man or woman realize that the evil threat, you know, we kind of live in this victim mentality culture. Everything's happening to us. It would be easy to think, oh, I just need to avoid all the stuff that's out there, if you heard this in one way. But I think the most accurate way is to see that the evil threat is not just from without, it's mostly from within. Jesus says in Mark 7, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. And as early as Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the threat here, the warning, is not just from those who tempt us or those who are on the outside. It is from our very own hearts. And the wise man recognizes that. And he realizes he needs a new heart. So I'll close with this. I don't really love commercials. I don't, does anyone love commercials? Um, but one commercial that I keep seeing that I think is really funny that I find myself wanting to watch, are, I think they're AT&T commercials, but it's the ones where like all these professionals come in and they're just like okay at their jobs. Do you all know what I'm talking about? No? You haven't seen the one about the surgeon that walks in? It's, it's great. Um, so, yeah, this surgeon walks in. This guy's about to have a major surgery, and they ask the nurse. The guy's about to have the surgery. The patient asks the nurse if they've ever worked with this surgeon before. And she's like, yeah, he's okay. And the doctor then walks in the room excitedly yelling down the hall to someone that he just got reinstated. And he whispers to the patient, but not officially. <laughs> and he asks the patient if he's nervous. And the patient says, yes, I'm nervous. And the surgeon says, yeah, me too. <laughs> but my favorite one is the guy who goes to see the tattoo artist. Nothing. I'm the only one who notices this. Yeah, right. The guy sits down to get his tattoo. And the tattoo artist says, first tattoo? The guy says, Yes. That tattoo artist responds, relax, bro. It's going to be okay. It's going to look okay. The guy's like, only okay? He says, relax, boss. I'm one of the okay tattoo artists in town. The tattoo guy starts in on the tattoo on his arm. The guy's, aren't you supposed to draw it first? The tattoo guy responds, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> and then the narrator says, just okay is not okay, especially when it comes to your wireless network. Don't settle for okay for your wireless network. I think many of us are not willing to settle for okay for our wireless network, but we're willing to settle for okay spiritually. Okay is not okay. Not just for your wireless network, but much more for the way that you live. And I think many of us have settled for just being okay. I think we're so tired. I think we're just happy to get through the day. We're just happy to show up. And that's no way to live. It creates incredible compromises. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not just die for you to be okay. You weren't meant for mediocrity. You were meant for glory. 
That's why when sin entered the world, God immediately promised to make things right through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Through the way of humility, through the path of wisdom, not the way of evil and the path of fools. Jesus wore that crown of thorns so that you could wear this graceful crown that's promised here. Jesus let men lie in wait for his blood and plunder his body so we could be set free to hear the Father's voice and follow his law for the blessing that it was meant to be for us. So if you're tired of settling this morning, the beauty of the gospel invitation is you have a chance each day. His mercies are new every morning to say no to sin and say yes to Christ. All his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. That's the choice before us today. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 2 to close. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey His word, and they were destined to do it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray.